the Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon K. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of the Collective Whisper Podcast. And today we are releasing a special episode for St. Patrick's Day. So the first thing we want to say to you guys is happy St. Patrick's Day. We hope you're having fun wherever you are in the world and you're enjoying it and you're reliving all your Patrick's Day memories and everything is green all around you, not just in your drinks, but also in your flags and buntings and grass and whatever it is you have there. So we hope you're having a great time. Today we are going to have a special guest, Andreas Destak. He's going to talk to us a little about St. Patrick's Day and about things that go on in his life. So that'll be very interesting to hear and we hope you stay tuned for that but before we get on to St. Patrick and Andreas Destat we'd just like to remind you guys please to follow and like the show and you know give us your continued support we appreciate it so much and it means a lot to us so thank you very much okay so let's look at St. Patrick so St. Patrick early in the 15th century an Irish ship beat against the waves along the western coast of Great Britain on the far edge of the crumbling Roman Empire a band of Irish marauders crept into a secluded cove and raided the village of Banavem Tabnaia among the plunder captured by the band of warriors dispatched by Ireland's King Nile of the nine hostages was a 16 year old boy named Suka although brought to Ireland against his will the teenager would go on to become Ireland's patron saint St. Patrick he may have been a foreigner who arrived in Ireland in the hold of a pagan king's slave ship, but he would become synonymous with the island itself. Established facts about Patrick's youth are few, and much of what is known comes from the saint himself in his short autobiography, The Confessio. According to traditional narrative, Patrick was born into a well-to-do family around 386 AD and grew up along Great Britain's western coast, likely in Wales, which was part of the Roman Empire at the time. His father was a Christian deacon and a minor Roman official, his grandfather a priest. The raid that tore him away from his family was not all that unusual in that early 5th century, says Philip Freeman, author of St. Patrick of Ireland, a biography. We know from a few other late Roman sources that the Irish had been raiding Western Britain regularly for at least a century before Patrick was captured in the early 400s, just as the Saxons had been raiding in the east of Britain, he says. One of the most horrifying features of the period is the wholesale enslavement of free men and women, writes Thomas Cahill in How the Irish Saved Civilization. In the slavery business, no tribe was fiercer or more feared than the Irish. As Roman power waned, forays by Irish raiders grew more common. On a regular basis, they plundered animals and clothes and snatched children from their sleep in the middle of the night. They abducted young men to herd sheep and cows and young women to serve them. Ripped from his home, Patrick herded sheep for a local chieftain on the slopes of Mount Slemish in County Antrim in the north of Ireland. Deprived of food and clothes, Patrick lived in virtual isolation. His only companions were his flock and his newfound faith. Amid the desolation, Patrick's Christianity blossomed. He prayed as many as 100 times during the day and matched that total at night. Patrick wrote in the Confessio that six years into his captivity, an angel appeared in a dream and told him, You have fasted well. Very soon you will return to your native country. The angel told him of a ship leaving Ireland and the young man walked across 200 miles of peat bogs and forests before arriving at a port, possibly Wexford, where he found a cargo ship bound for the European continent. After the captain refused him passage, Patrick began to pray. Before he could finish, though, a sailor from the ship came shouting, Come quickly, those men are calling you. After learning that the captain changed his mind, Patrick sailed away from Ireland believing that God's protection must have been responsible for his unlikely escape. St. Patrick biographer Freeman says that although the escape was unusual, it likely occurred. It would have been a harrowing and difficult journey, but we have stories of escaped slaves from elsewhere in the Roman world. But not all scholars believe it. Roy Fletchner, author of St. Patrick Retold, The Legend and History of Ireland's Patron Saint, has raised doubts about the legend of the saint's time in slavery. The traditional story that Patrick was kidnapped from Britain, forced to work as a slave but managed to escape and reclaim his status, is likely to be fiction, he said in a Cambridge University study. The probability that Patrick managed to cross from his alleged place of captivity in Western Ireland back to Britain undetected at a time when transportation was extremely complicated is highly unlikely. 
Fletchner asserts that rather than coming to Ireland against his will, Patrick deliberately fled to the island to avoid inheriting his father's job as a Roman tax collector, which was becoming an increasingly dangerous and financially risky job in the collapsing empire since collectors were responsible for making up any shortfalls out of their own pocket. He also argues that rather than being an enslaved man, it was more likely that Patrick was actually a slave trader because he proclaimed himself a wealthy man at a time when Ireland lacked a monetary economy and slave trading was one of the few lucrative businesses. The traditional legend was instigated by Patrick himself in the texts he wrote, Fletcher said, because this is how he wanted to be remembered. In St. Patrick's telling in the Confessio, he almost died after his escape from slavery. After landing on the continent, the ship's crew found itself wandering for weeks in a wilderness devoid of food and began to chastise Patrick for his piety. What about this, Christian? You tell us that your God is great and all-powerful. Why can't you pray for us since we're in a bad state with hunger? The starving sailors asked him. Turn in faith with all your hearts to the Lord my God, because nothing is impossible for him, replied the young man who led them in prayer that appeared to be immediately answered when a stampede of pigs crossed their path. Patrick had his first converts. Patrick eventually returned to his family in Great Britain. His parents begged him to never leave them again, but the religious visions returned and presented Patrick with a different plan. He heard the voice of the Irish call out, We beg you, holy boy, to come and walk again among us. After a period of religious training, he was ordained a deacon around 418 AD and in 432 AD consecrated as a bishop and given the name Patricius. Although many formerly enslaved people would have dreaded a return to their place of captivity, Patrick asked for an assignment as a missionary to Ireland. When he returned to the pagan island, he tended to a different type of flock. Patrick's knowledge of Ireland's language and customs facilitated his work in converting and baptizing Druid priests, chieftains and aristocrats by the thousands before his death on March 17th in 461 AD. Okay, so that's really interesting. I mean, there's different sides to the story and, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe, you know, whether he made it all up about himself, whether he was a real man. He definitely in the following years has captured the imagination of the Irish people when they were living abroad and the Irish in Ireland itself. And now the world, lots of other people are captivated by it. So it's an amazing, interesting story. Okay, so we're going to look at St. Patrick's Day traditions and some, you know, where they originated from. The shamrock. The shamrock, which was also called the, the shamrai by the Celts, was a sacred plant in ancient Ireland because it symbolized the rebirth of spring. By the 17th century, the shamrock had become a symbol of emerging Irish nationalism. As the English began to seize Irish land and make laws against the use of the Irish language and the practice of Catholicism, many Irish began to wear the shamrock as a symbol of their pride in their heritage and their displeasure with English rule. So, the Irish music, this is the next part. Music is often associated with St. Patrick's Day and Irish culture in general. From ancient days of the Celts, music has always been an important part of Irish life. Celts had an oral culture where religion, legend and history were passed from one generation to the next by way of stories and songs. After being conquered by the English and forbidden to speak their own language, the Irish, like other oppressed peoples, turned to music to help. It helped them remember important events and hold on to their heritage and history. As it often stirred emotion and helped to galvanize people, music was outlawed by the English. During her reign, Queen Elizabeth I even decreed that all artists and pipers were to be arrested and hanged on the spot. Today, traditional Irish bands like the Chieftains, the Clancy Brothers and Tommy Makem are gaining worldwide popularity. Their music is produced with instruments that have been used for centuries, including the fiddle, the Elon pipes, the tin whistle. It's a sort of flute that is actually made of nickel, silver, brass or aluminium and the baron, an ancient type of frame drum that was traditionally used in warfare rather than music. So St. Patrick and the Snake. It has long been recounted that during his mission in Ireland, St. Patrick once stood on a hilltop, which is now called Crowpatrick, and with only a wooden staff by his side, banished all the snakes from Ireland. In fact, the island nation was never home to any snake. The banishing of the snakes was really a metaphor for the eradication of pagan ideology from Ireland and the triumph of Christianity. Within 200 years of Patrick's arrival, Ireland was completely Christianized. Corn beef. So... Each year, thousands of Irish Americans gather with their loved ones on St. Patrick's Day to share a traditional meal of corned beef and cabbage. Though cabbage has long been an Irish food, corned beef only began to be associated with St. Patrick's Day at the turn of the 20th century. Irish immigrants living on New York City's Lower East Side substituted corned beef for the traditional dish of Irish bacon to save money. They learned about the cheaper alternative from their Jewish neighbors. <laughs> okay, leprechauns, we can't forget those. One icon of the Irish holiday is the leprechaun. 
The original Irish name for these figures of folklore is Leprechaun, meaning small-bodied fellow. Belief in leprechauns probably stems from Celtic belief in fairies, tiny men and women who could use their magical powers to serve good or evil. In Celtic folktales, leprechauns were cranky souls responsible for mending the shoes of the other fairies. Though only minor figures in Celtic folklore, leprechauns were known for their trickery, which they often used to protect their much-fabled treasure. Leprechauns have their own holiday on May 13th, but are also celebrated on St. Patrick's Day, with many dressing up as the wily fairies. Okay, that's quite interesting. So, when we think of St. Patrick's Day, we think of, you know, lots of processions and floats and everything all around the Irish shore and, uh, and Irish towns. You know, St. Patrick's Day is so big in America. So let's look at how St. Patrick's Day was made in America. So St. Patrick may be the patron saint of Ireland, but many St. Patrick's Day traditions were born in the United States. Every March 17th, the United States becomes an emerald country for a day. Americans wear green clothes and quaff green beer. Green milkshakes, bagels and grits appear on menus. In a leprechaun-worthy shenanigan, Chicago even dyes its river green. Revelers from coast to coast celebrate all things Irish by hoisting pints of Guinness and cheering bagpipers, step dancers and marching bands parading through city streets. These familiar annual traditions weren't imported from Ireland, however, they were made in America. In contrast to the merrymaking in the United States, March 17th has been more holy day than holiday in Ireland. Since 1631, St. Patrick's Day has been a religious feast day to commemorate the anniversary of the 5th century death of the missionary credited with spreading Christianity to Ireland. For several centuries, March 17th was a day of solemnity in Ireland, with Catholics attending church in the morning and partaking of modest feasts in the afternoon. There were no parades and certainly no emerald-tinted food products, particularly since blue, not green, was the traditional colour associated with Ireland's patron saint prior to the 1798 Irish Rebellion. Boston has long staked claim to the first St. Patrick's Day celebration in the American colonies. On March 17, 1737, more than two dozen Presbyterians who emigrated from the north of Ireland gathered to honour St. Patrick and formed the Charitable Irish Society to assist distressed Irishmen in the city. The oldest Irish organisation in North America still holds an annual dinner every St. Patrick's Day. Historian Michael Francis, however, unearthed evidence that St. Augustine, Florida, may have hosted America's first St. Patrick's Day celebration. While researching Spanish gunpowder expeditioner logs, Francis found records that indicate cannon blaster gunfire were used to honour the saint in 1600, and that residents of the Spanish garrison town processed through the streets in honour of St. Patrick the following year, perhaps at the behest of an Irish priest living there. Ironically, it was a band of redcoats who started the storied green tradition of America's largest and longest St. Patrick's Day parade in 1762, when Irish-born soldiers serving in the British Army marched through Lower Manhattan to a St. Patrick's Day breakfast at a local tavern. The March 17 parades by the Irish through the streets of New York City raised the ire of nativist anti-Catholic mobs who started their own tradition of paddy-making on the eve of St. Patrick's Day by erecting effigies of Irishmen wearing rags and necklaces of potatoes with whiskey bottles in their hands until the practice was banned in 1803. After Irish Catholics flooded into the country in the decade following the failure of Ireland's potato crop in 1845, they clung to their Irish identities and took to the streets in St. Patrick's Day parades to show strength in numbers as a political retort to nativist know-nothings. Many who were forced to leave Ireland during the Great Hunger brought a lot of memories, but they didn't have their country, so it was a celebration of being Irish, says Mike McCormick, a national historian for the ancient order of Hibernians. But there was also a bit of defiance because of the bigotry by the know-nothings against them. McCormick says, Attitudes towards the Irish began to soften after tens of thousands of them served in the Civil War. They went out as second-class citizens but came back as heroes, he says. As the Irish slowly assimilated into American culture, those without Celtic blood began to join in St. Patrick's Day celebrations. While St. Patrick's Day evolved in the 20th century into a party day for Americans of all ethnicities, the celebration in Ireland remained solemn. The Connick Telegraph reported of Ireland's commemorations on March 17, 1952. St. Patrick's Day was very much like any other day, only duller. For decades, Irish laws prohibited pubs from opening on holy days such as March 17th. Until 1961, the only legal place to get a drink in the Irish capital on St. Patrick's Day was the Royal Dublin Dog Show, which naturally attracted those with only a passing canine interest. <laughs> there you go, man's best friend. Have a pint. The party atmosphere only spread to Ireland after the arrival of television when the Irish could see all the fun being had across the ocean. Modern Ireland took a cue from America, McCormick says. The multi-day St. Patrick's Day Festival launched in Dublin in 1996 now attracts one million people each year. 
The Irish are now adopting St. Patrick's Day traditions from Irish America, such as corned beef and cabbage. McCormick says there are some American traditions, however, that might not catch on in Ireland, such as green Guinness. As McCormick says, St. Patrick never drank green beer. Okay, that's quite interesting. I mean, so many facts about you know, the man himself and so many facts about how people perceived him and so many other facts about how parades and processions were started and really interesting. And, you know, it's like taking a look back through history and seeing all the things related to St. Patrick that made him become the legend he is. Okay, now we're going to talk to Andreas Destak and Andreas is going to tell us a little about his life so far. So Andres Stack um, is an Irish actor-musician and one of a few generations of Irish storytellers. He performs in both Irish and English. He is best known for his award-winning one-man shows around the world on 80 Quid, The Year I Got Younger, The Summer I Did the Leaving, and The Man from Mugaga. His first West End role was in Woody Says, a show about the life and music of Woody Guthrie. His first lead role in a feature film was I Am Rafferty, The Weaver of Words, where he portrayed the blind 19th century itinerant Irish poet in the biographical movie. Other film roles include Malarkey, The Year I Got Younger, Further We Search, and A Moment of Grace. Irish television appearances include The Clinic on RT and Crack the Stack on TG4. In 2013, he was one of three judges on TG4's Score Encore, on which contestants performed traditional music, song or dance. He was the presenter of the competition dance show on Jig Gig on the same network in 2013, 2014 and 2015. He has won numerous awards with his Around the World and 80 Quid in Edinburgh Fringe Festival, Best Irish Short Documentaries for A Year I Got Younger, Best Solo Show in New Zealand Fringe Festival, Festival. So many. He's so many awards and he's done really well with himself and he has a great filmography as well. So his music career, he began as a traditional Irish fiddler, kind of like a traveling gypsy violinist, and he's performed all around the world in various violin and singing concerts as a solo actor with various bands. He's part of an Irish outfit called the Blackwater Salmon. Andreas won the audience and unique musical instrument awards at the Medzhnidawi Festival in Gdansk, Poland. I think I pronounced that correct, in 2007. So after a sellout run at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2007, Andreas returned to Galway to launch Latchko, his first CD of his music. Andreas, along with Tim Scanlon and former Saw Doctors drummer Avian Craddock, make up the Gaelic gypsy hip-hop band The Lachicos. They have performed live in Canada, Ireland, England, France, the United States and Australia. They released their first single, Off to Bondi Junction, and won 10-track CD, Sugar Beat Sessions, in 2013. Andreas and The Lachicos are popular internationally for their hybrid of Spanish gypsy music and hip-hop. Okay, Andreas Destak, welcome to the show. Okay, so we have Andres Destak on uh, the Collective Whisper podcast with us this evening. Hello, Andres. How are you? Hey, man. How's it going? How's things? Great to have you on. Man from Currafin. Man from Currafin. Simon from Currafin. Your neighbor of my own. Simon Kelly from Currafin, the bold man. So you're busy, Andres. You're busy at the moment or you're kind of relaxing? How's the form and everything? I don't know. I'm kind of crawling up out of it, you know, like, you know, the way it is, like, I don't know, am I kind of slipping into a slip jig or sliding up out of a slide? <laughs> kind of like, um, did nothing there for two years, you know. Bits of ideas, bits of albums, yeah. bits of books, books half written, short stories half finished. Nothing really gets done till I go on stage, you know, and I have to crack with people. Um, yes. And then I'm in London on Monday, but doing some kind of a thing. Uh, it's two singer-songwriters in it. It's Joshua Burnside, Kerry Baxter, Alvaretti. Oh, yeah, yeah, Alvaretti. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called the Tully Snug. I think it's sponsored by Tullamore too. I've been doing a bit of that in Dublin and London. And then I'm myself and the Lachicos are uh, recording a kind of a, not really a live album, but we're going into a cottage um, between here and Gart. And we'll be recording a kind of a storytelling session with music. So that'll be a bit of crack. Oh, that's great. When did you do your last Lachicos gig? We had a great night in Whelan's on the 28th of February 2000, 2020. Sorry. Okay. I get mixed up with that. Jeez, I was going to say 2000. That's a long time ago. <laughs> it's all a fucking blur to me, you know. 2020, yeah. <laughs> okay, the last two years or the last 20 years. I, don't, I, I get mixed up. <laughs> I feel like, I don't know, have I been in COVID since 93 or 94? Remember Nirvana played at the point and I can't remember after that. Did the COVID hit you hard? Like, did you kind of feel disillusioned with the whole thing, not gigging and, you know, how did it affect you? I loved it. Every fucking minute of it. Really? Loved it. You had a break? Yeah. <laughs> went to bed. I went to bed there for a year or two. I'm only after waking up. You were like the eternal hedgehog. Oh, fucking right. Groundhog Day. Yeah, well, sure. I think for a lot of people, they kind of had a bit of a sleep for a few months. And then they were like, fuck, what will I do now? And geez, uh, 
will I do anything? I'm not playing music or yeah. I'm not doing anything. Will I write a book? Will I, you know, what will I do? And uh, it's mad now how people have reinvented themselves a little bit. But I'd say for a lot of people, it's trying hard because they're trying to find out still what the hell, how am I going to bounce back from this, you know? Yeah, that's exactly it, isn't it? How the fuck do you bounce back? Yeah, and then you might decide not to. How do you bounce back? Like I was looking at going plastering, but plastering is hard work, you know, and I hadn't really done much experience. And then I signed up for another thing, farm relief, where I was going milking. But like, wanted me to drive to Tipperary. Yeah. yeah, it was hard to earn a crust. You know, it was like, I was fucking sick of music. I was sick of... Yeah. I, in fairness, I don't have any music online, but I heard that the money is shit putting it on iTunes and Spotify. Yeah, yeah. I was only in doing live stuff, but like, I wasn't really doing comedy because you can't say anything anymore. You know, you can't say, you can't talk about going out fucking trying to get the shift or you insult someone like her you can't talk about we had one song called The Monkey Dance and it was about I don't know do you remember it was an old fucking hotel down in near Ballyhonis or not called the Belmont Hotel oh I remember it well I remember it in yeah, the middle of nowhere middle of nowhere and in around February or March right it used to be available cheap for the shotgun weddings okay. you know the shotgun wedding yeah. it'd be about, about six or eight months after bonfire night yeah and um, young people in our village used to go down well, I used to be telling this story, but there was a song or a tune in the middle of God, can you do the monkey dance? Can you? But people say, no, you can't say that now. You can't say that anymore. I said, what? That, oh, the monkey dance is, is apparently it's, it's a racial slur or something. It comes, I think there's English soccer hooligans say monkey. To, oh, yeah. To people if they're from. Someone probably used it for something exactly. and now it's fucking cancelled everywhere. Exactly. Some, some fucking soccer hooligan in the UK probably said it to someone from South America or yeah, something. Yeah. And yeah. now we can't do We can't tell the story about going down to the, the place below Hollywood for the shotgun wedding, you know? So I was just finding... Yeah. And then also the live scene as well. You know, you start telling stories and playing tunes and everyone has the camera out. And like, it's great crack on the night. You know, I might say a few F words by accent or I might fiddle might be a bit out of tune if I'm tired or I'm just having to Next thing, the shite is all over the internet and you're like, are a bollocks. Like, so I don't know, like... It's too much scrutiny, isn't it? Ah, oh, stop. You could do nothing. I was trying to go back teaching, but... That's hard work as well. You have to be up before nine in the morning, you know. Were you what were you teaching like in primary or national school? What were you doing? Ah, uh, no, no. I was just doing um, music with t- transitions. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. like the, the teachers then, they'd want me to take first class in the morning so that they could sleep in, you know. So I couldn't <laughs> be down there at nine in the morning, and like, you know, and they'd be putting like sixty kids into you. Like, and yeah, what would they no. do? No, they do about twenty. Yeah. But they'd be all, sh- you know, they'd be shoving it all into you. And then they'd tell you, oh, and you have to do it in Irish as well. I said, hang on, no, I didn't agree to this now. I love that kind of thing where, you know, it's like me here and someone asked me to do English teaching in a school or whatever. And I'd say, oh, I'm a music teacher as well. And they'd say, oh, that's great. And you're kind of like, no, no, yeah. that's another price. <laughs> I'm not doing, I'm not, you're paying me for one rate. But if you yeah, want me yeah, to teach yeah. music, that's a different rate. You know what I mean? Well, that's what they do here now. They ring up and they say, oh, you do this, that, and the other. And then just before you go to class, oh, and you have to do this, that's I'm like, yeah, I can. Like, it's fair to me, you know, but like, you know, that that's another gig that you're not kind of getting paid for. Well, I mean, it, they're, they're they're pulling too much out of you and, and they're wanting to do it early in the morning. Oskelga. Uh, and they're fucking like what else, what other tricks do you have can you juggle yeah we're pulling and dragging out of you the whole time that's crazy isn't it? flat out but the mad thing is going back there to your shows because your shows are very dynamic in the sense that when people are there and they're kind of all like locked in a room nearly and they're all vibing with you and they're getting into it mm. but then you have if you have some fucker with cameras in your face and it's too much you know it's not like Coldplay and Wembley and there's hundreds of thousands but the thing is for your show it's completely different it's a very intimate kind of a thing and like you said if you make a mistake or your fiddle's out of tune that's for the moment it's not to be scrutinised a day later is it? No that's exactly it yeah and you don't mind sometimes people just sharing videos with each other on WhatsApp but I don't know sometimes it can go up online and yeah. it can just be it's grand sometimes you don't mind, but you know, it's just hard to enjoy yourself because you're in the moment, you want the audience in the moment. But the minute someone takes out a phone and a camera, then they're not in the moment and you're suddenly on camera, which is a different moment, you know. And things are taken out of context. Exactly. 
exactly. And you don't know now yeah. when you could be, you know, you could be, it just, number one, anything that's funny and good crack in the moment, it doesn't look funny and good crack the next day. It just looks like shite. No. I'm aware that sometimes I don't be practicing much on the fiddle and I took it up late in life. So it can be beating out of tune. Now, it doesn't matter in the live because it's the vibe. But sometimes putting it up, I could be a bit critical of it. And I hate the sound of out of tune fiddle. I saw my planet. Well, anyone else has to put up with one. I have to hear it myself. It drives me fucking bananas. It's like the nine-year-old practicing the fiddle next door screeching. And you're like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> I'd like to think I was a bit better than that now. No, I think you are. I think you're a little bit better. <laughs> no, no, I can be good if I know. Like, yeah, if yeah. I'm doing a but music gig, I tune up and I want them. But the point of it is, I mean... The point of it is, it's it's a show and it's a, it has a mixture of everything. And I guarantee you, the people there on the night, if your fiddle is out of tune for a song or anything, they're not really fucking looking at that. And there might be a muse on the corner sip, standing over his Guinness thinking it. But the truth is, most people don't care about that. But when you get sober people looking at it and the people that are dry the next day, they're kind of scrutinizing it. And then they're commenting and you have the armchair terrorists, you know, with the keyboard warriors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it, yeah. Also, I don't really sing. I have a pretty limited range, but the odd time, you know the way you'd be in a session, you'd drop yeah. back the head and the mouth open, like flip top head and you just let it all out. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? There's a moment when you're on stage when things are like they're a great crack and you can do and say anything. Yeah. Oh, look at, you know, sometimes I do say it at gigs, you know, or get, get the person on before me to say, can we just have yeah. no phones for this for a while? But I have an idea there I want to do now. I want to do nights of playing music where it's like, no phones, no shoes, so people can jump around. No, and no booze, no booze, no shoes. So imagine doing it where there's no pint glasses, no bottles or glass, no bar. Just have everyone lipping around, you know. Put the phones in a plastic bag or something on the way in. Keep them away from the gate. You know what I mean? Well, you have a have a sledgehammer at the at the door. <laughs> and sledge. What for? Sledge anyone's phone. Yeah, sledge the phone. Sledge Murphy at the door. I break phones for a living. You know. <laughs> Oh, who was he again? Was he from up here, West? Sledge Murphy? No, I just remember that name. We, I, I, I always use that name. We always in Big Dick Murphy, or you know, using that name always. You know, Murphy always comes into it somehow. I think he was from Sligo. I'm looking it up here. Sledge Murphy, M U R. The name is kind of uh, synonymous with something. I just don't know what it is. It's in the back of my mind. So I think I met him with the Chum crowd up in, um, and the member of the Fela ninety one. When we all went to Thurles, yeah. he was down there because I was down with Kenny Martimer. There was a guy from Sligo called Niall Clark who went to Charlotte. He was a boarder, apparently a good footballer as well. And he was friendly with a few lads. I don't know if it was there from Tupper Curry or Sligo Town, but there was a lad with them called Sledge. And he, he was some character. It was a great trick at the time. Like, you won't remember this now. But back in the day, like, when we were stuck for money for Porter, like, there was this trick you could do, right? It was Fela, right? So it was before Electric Picnic and before we had, like, you know, exotic. I was only 14. I went down to Shrule to Das Mass. And myself and one of the lads who used to meet Mass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back, sitting in the in the, the toilets behind the church in Shrule smoking fags. And normally, and was, there were a few people there with us. And next thing one of them says, we were saying, what do we do tonight, lads? You know, will we go to Kong or will we go drink inside or whatever? And someone says, no, I'm going to Fela. No way. And there was two carloads leaving through that were going to Fela. One of them was a mechanic in Murphy's tractor garage and the lad was working in McHale's because nobody had a car at that time. Like, no one young, like. But one lad left school and he had a, he was a mechanic and the lad was working in McHale's farm machinery and came in. So they had two cars, you know, the cracks that time, little two-seater with them. Yeah, yeah. So we're all piled into the back of these cars. <laughs> a two-car procession. A two-car procession, yeah. But there was like nine in the back of each car. Blankets. I remember I had 60 quid, which was every bit of money. The, the, holy, the holy communion money. That was a lot that time. Oh, the confirmation money, like the, all the, the, the three blue 20 notes wrapped up. But when we were all in, the money was gone anyway. And the next day, everyone was still drinking on the Monday and the Tuesday. First time I went on a right weekend session. Hadn't slept in three or four days and we were roughing it. But in the last of it, there was this trick that we picked up from the like a sledge and a few other winos that we were learning off. And you'd find like a pint glass, right? And it would have urlach. What things for urlach? Like an inch. Yeah. It'd have an inch of Guinness at the bottom of it. You know, or there'd be less than most of it. But you could piss into it, right? And you could bring it up to the oh, top. Right. And yeah, it would look yeah, like yeah. a bad point of Schmittix. And you could go up to the bar then and you'd say, the bars were so busy. You'd say, Jesus, do you remember I bought this pint of Schmittix up there from Instagram? Tasted it. It's gone bad. It must be bottom of the cake. Left, give me another one. Bad barrel. Yeah, bad barrel, bad barrel. Throw, throw it down the sink there and give me another one. <laughs> So, sure enough, 
that was the trick for the free schmittics for the weekend. And it worked. I bet you it worked too. Oh, we're on the piss for the week, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Except there's one lad in the corner with the with that pint of piss drinking it going, this is pure shite what I'm drinking. <laughs> Fuck's sake. Yeah, don't, don't, no, no, those no. were the days. The crack is when the barman won't throw it on sick. He'll just chop it up and give it to someone else. So listen, um, I was going to say to you there, with the gigs there, that one thing that's kind of curious as well now, the whole, we were saying, the whole cancel culture. I mean, because you have to be really careful what you say at a gig now, which does take all the fun out of it. Oh. And now, I mean, you have all these comedians being fucking cancelled and it's just crazy, isn't it? I mean, you can't say nothing nowadays. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I don't even be online much. I was living there for a while. Um, with no electricity yeah. you know uh, I stopped renting in Dublin and I moved back out the country and there was a few acres of land that was in the family so I just put up a mobile and I had to wait a year to get the electricity connected and um, I just listened to the radio I did the Wi-Fi off the phone you know like just checking emails and stuff, but I didn't um, didn't have enough time for scrolling mm. I was just listening to Radio Nagelt with that then as well so I could kind of get the news but I wasn't really getting wasn't getting hammered with it during the COVID you know you know and I just took a break and it was great but it's just hard now getting back into it because um, yeah like I suppose the thing yeah. is that um, there's certain areas in the arts where you can kind of be unknown and anonymous and like say if you're you know maybe a sculptor or a set designer or working backstage in theatre yeah but when if you want to be a performer, like as in getting gigs, or an actor, or a musician, or a comedian, or any of that, you kind of have to do the social media, and that's the pain in the hole. Part. Yeah, or a podcaster. It's a bit of a pain <laughs> in the hole. You know? Nowadays, I mean, you know, like a few years ago, you'd say, "Oh, we want to do a gig," and you know, you get some posters printed up wherever you could get it done, and you know, you spread the word, and mm. you fucking get a few raffle tickets and you try and make the gig appealing but nowadays I mean everything they say oh have you put it on Twitter have you put it on Instagram have you put it on this and you're thinking fuck me I'm, put I'm putting more time into the fucking planning of the gig than I'm actually doing rehearsing or anything and I think for a lot of musicians now they're like the fun is going out of it and now when you look at all these manufactured bands and musicians and that's how they're becoming famous maybe they don't mind or maybe they do uh, yeah it's kind of funny like that yeah it's um I don't know. I mean, I suppose maybe for older guys like us, we can look at that. I think for young people, it's probably it's an exciting time. You know, people can suddenly become famous overnight on TikTok. I suppose the thing I realize is yeah. that um, when I do relaunch videos and when I do a bit of social media, it does impact on the numbers. So I think, you know, if I start booking shows in Whelan's again or in Cork or Belfast, then I probably will have to go online. It's a bit of a catch-22, you know, because the minute you say, uh, I'm this or I'm that or my band is this, you know, the booker or the venue will just look it up. Yeah. And they'll say, oh, sure, you have only 13,000 fucking followers. You know, we've got your DJ in here tomorrow night that it, it's like, uh, you know, you can imagine the fellas going into the Dalton Inn, Claire Morris or whatever, and they're saying, oh, we're Mike and Joe, yeah. we've a big following up around Trule and uh, Westmead and everywhere around the country. And they go, yeah. oh, geez, and they take the word for it. Nice poster, lads. But nowadays, the, the guy would be taking out, hold on now and I check you out on Instagram. Yeah. But four followers, lads. Oh, we only started this week. Yeah, well, you know, when, when Jazz and Blues started in New Orleans. Yeah. And um, a lot of the guys started to work up in Chicago, you know, like I think Louis Armstrong, um, can't remember the history, but Chicago was the big city for the blues in the north, yeah. I'd say, the north part of America. And, but a lot of the great blues and jazz, as you know, emerged from New Orleans. Robert Johnson and yeah. But they used to say when they would go up, like to go gigging outside Chicago and up north, like there was... They could, you could come up like a, a random dude could come up from New Orleans and say, I'm Robert Johnson. And people wouldn't really know the difference if you could sing like him because there wasn't many photos. Yeah. There might be only one photo, and that was in last week's newspaper. Yeah. Which those newspapers in those days were cut up and used as tile paper. So they didn't know. So, like, to think of how it has changed now where everything, like, there's more photographs being taken now per second than there was one time in a whole year. Yeah, now you can check everything and verify everything. But, but it's not real verification, Simon. No, no, it's not. It's just, yeah, it's, it's stuff that's put out there. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, no, it is. It's difficult now. And, and the problem is that it's harder for fellas, you know, just to prove themselves and play a gig. You know yourself, one time you go into a bar, even if it's a local bar, give us a gig and you'd say, oh, look, we'll do the first gig half price or for nothing. Give us a gig and, and a few pints and all that. And then if we bring in a crowd, you know, they give you a few more gigs and it was just do the work. And, you know, if you perform well and people like you, whereas nowadays it's all about the numbers, isn't it? I know, but for for TV, radio, and for live gigs, you need to see what kind of a reach you have on social media because that will impact on the numbers. Yeah. That'll yeah. um, tune in to your trumpet again. Of course. They're not willing to take a gamble unless they know there's something coming back, you know? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, you know, um, I, don't, I don't know. Like, I I suppose I might like do an effort you now soon, you know, get back on online. You should, you should. I mean, continue. You, you had a great thing going. And I think for a lot of people, yeah, they're not sure what way they're going to do it. But I, I can see you getting back into it, you know. I'm sure there'll be, we'll see you on our screens more, you know. Ah, uh, yeah, well, the small screen, I'd say. <laughs> The TikTok screen. I love your story about the puka and the fucking social media is like the modern day puka, isn't it? You don't know if he's out to help you or hinder you. Do you think he died off or he's still still around? Well, it's an interesting one. It's kind of funny because I don't know if you heard they were trying to put a puka statue in Ennis Diamond and it was objected to, you know, and uh, it, the locals kind of won out because um, they just weren't consulted, you know. And um, it's kind of weird. It was just weird the way the media portrayed this, you know. They kind of portrayed it like it was satanic or something. Yeah, they were kind of saying, ah, the priest is against it and that's why the people don't want it. But certain people didn't want this from the start, you know. There's different angles depending on who you talk to. But like, I thought myself, I thought like, ah, you know, it was kind of like the energy of the puka was in the madness, not in in the the campaign against it and in the campaign for it. Yeah. I would have known some of the people involved and my, a friend of mine wrote a great song about Ender Harn, you know, and that, to be fair, what was great about that was you could see the power of the bard as well in the end of it, that, you know, like he wasn't consulted about it and he was a great bard, neither was the historians, any of the local historians or storytellers weren't asked at all, you know, which was kind of strange. Well, you know, that's maybe another reason why it wasn't welcome, you know. So in many ways, I think the book energy... Yeah. Is very alive, you know, and that kind of, but it was kind of funny the way the the Dublin media was saying, oh, you don't want this because, you know, you think it's pagan and the priest said you don't want it, so you don't want it. But no, the reason we didn't want it is because nobody was consulted about it. No local storytellers, historians, uh, musicians or local artists. So it was kind of a funny one in that sense. And what's time, but it would have been a good statue, in, 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 you know, in some places, you know, like it could have worked in some places in Clare, but also it would be a good statue, maybe, I don't know, the Leprechaun Museum in Dublin or somewhere. But, the, the, you know, it was just the way it was done. So I thought that in myself that... yeah. There was an element of that that had the real puka energy about it, that it was just so wild and so crazy. The great thing about the puka, isn't it, that like it is that bit of madness that comes over all of us. And I mean, you know, if we look back now at films and televisions and whatever, watching shows like Vikings and these and you see the the paganistic rituals and everything, everybody needs to go a little mad sometimes, I mean, to get stuff yeah. out, don't they? And, and I don't mean mad as in with mental health, but I mean that release and the puka was kind of a little bit of a release for people, wasn't it? Yeah, like, I mean, in the story that I did about him, like, I think that it was, I mean, I only remember, like, you know, putting together a few bits. I remember, you know, from what I'd heard growing up, um, bits I'd collected here and there. And like, yeah, that idea that someone could fall out of a pub, but when they wake up the next morning and they're covered in cuts and briars and it's, it's basically they've just been out drinking, fighting, riding. But also they might have crawled home. They might have got lost. They might have ended up in the Fortune Wara on the way home, you know. Or, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there's yeah. some nights where you could have a fight with a briar or a fight with a bush, you know. Fall uh, in the wrong side of a bush. Yeah, yeah, or we used to say, if you got a funny haircut, they'd say, did you meet the hungry donkey coming down the road? You know, so it was about, that was what the puka was. They'd say, jeez, I, I ended up on a... But I remember, like, I mean, you probably will remember as well, when Galway had that wildness in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, you have to remember, dance music was kind of new. So yeah. the whole idea of going out and taking these new substances that were never part of it before. But also the the old Galway was there as well with the old hash that came from Morocco. We down Yeah, but there was because it's funny there was there was nights there in Galway City when lads had 
you know, be in supermax with the hoods up and they'd be, have dropped a few acid tabs and, you know, they'd be walking around. And I remember one night and myself and a few lads and we had, a, you know, strange substances fell from the sky and landed on us in a kind of a, a glowing mist. And it, you know, made us into these different people. And we were walking through this park and we saw this tree yeah. and this tree was like amazing. It was like a glistening tree from heaven or something. And we were like, fuck me, it was amazing. And we, we stood yeah. around it and sat around it. And I think we were there for like two hours. And it was just so, it was like God was there in the tree. And then the next day, we were coming home. And you know what it was? Some fella had got one of the old uh, BASF cassette tapes and wrapped it all around the tree. <laughs> wow. But isn't that great that he's... His yes. very simple approach to kind of um, public art had like, you know. And it's- yeah, but but the tape in the, in the lights of Galway down there, it was there. Right, you know where it was? You know, the little park in the in the cladded beside the cross from the fire station. We call that Father Grattan Park. Father Grattan Park. That's the one in there. The tree in there covered in cassette tape. And in the lights and in the drunken and stupor and all of this, whatever we were under, all their influence, uh-huh. it was like the most amazing thing ever. And all it was was a bit of old cassette tape. Just shows you, doesn't it? That's a bit of the puka. I'd love to know what music was on that cassette tape. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> it sang to us that Imagine. night. It sang to us that night. Yeah. So tell us, you know, we're we're obviously we're going to be talking in this podcast, you know, I, I, about St. Patrick's Day. So what does St. Patrick's Day mean to you? Is it too commercial? Is it like, is it a is it a mythical story or do you think it's just a lot of old horse shit? You know, what do you think of it? Uh, well, as you know, Simon, there's two sides to every story. And uh, on a practical level, I mean, Patrick's Day for me was just about celebration of recent aspects of Irish culture and I suppose the music and, and you know at the moment I get gigs now as I said going to London to do a bit of storytelling on Monday and they'll be doing when I was a kid my father ran the Celtic Arts Festival in San Francisco and that would usually be on the 9th to 10th of March the week before Paddy's Day because it's pretty big in the States you know yeah. um, you know it's it's it's, a, it's probably an understatement for me to say that St. Paddy's Day is bigger in America than it is in Ireland it's huge yeah, yeah, you know it, you know it's only recently I suppose only the last 20 or 30 years it's become a bigger thing in Ireland you know I think in Dublin now they've turned it into a bit of a festival for, for obvious reasons but um, I think when we were kids we used to wait day with a few floats you know mm. And that all, as you know, kind of came back from America. You see, the Irish, as you know, were very, um, we were oppressed, I suppose, by the Brits for more than 800 years. And when people started to get a bit of freedom and a bit of money and started to stand upright in the States, um, they were kind of became a bit more proud of their heritage. Also, the Irish were white. Now, I know there's books about how the Irish became white and blah, blah, blah. But generally speaking, suddenly there was a kind of a, Mm. They were kind of a lower income white people that suddenly wouldn't be treated like shite anymore. And they were kind of marching up and down the town proclaiming they're um, being a bit more proud of their ancestry. Now, I know that can come across. As, yeah, and I know nowadays it can come across as, you know, white culture or white supremacy. But I don't, it, it was never meant to be that. It was yeah, just basically identity. people who have been oppressed an awful lot in their own country. And when they got freedom, um, you know, America and other countries like Australia, you know, and Canada. But America, some of these countries offered huge freedom for Irish people. So then they would, I don't know how or why, but sometime after the foundation of the country, I think it was the 20s, 30s or 40s, they found this day, the 17th of March. Uh, now, it could be that it's around the spring equinox, which is usually the 21st of March. So, you know, often things like Catholic things or national things often coincide with all pagan things. So it could be. Of course, they're a mixture. Some of them are a mixture, yeah, aren't they? That's right, yeah. Like Bonfire Night, Christmas, Halloween, all these things are a mixture, yeah. One thing there that struck me as very funny was in the pagan culture, there, there was, um, I'm not sure if I have this exactly right, but there was a woman they used to worship and her name was Mara. And I, I think it was Mara. And I was thinking, that's very close to Mary. It's really, un- or Maria, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So you kind of wonder about the, the, the mixing of the myths of these religions too, and the pagan cultures kind of slowly traverse into Christianity. Yeah, totally. I mean, they worship Mara as in the sea and the Mother Mary and Ella Maria, star of the sea. And then Patro then was the opposite of that. Mara was the, like, Mano, like the female Mara, as we say. And then Patro was the 
the, the patri, patriarchy and the patri and the father's figure. Yeah. And um, as you know, then like at some point then there was, there may have been three or four St. Patrick's. It was kind of like a, a latter day John the Baptist Jesus Christ type figure who brought you know elements of the Roman religion that was kind of spreading across through Europe at the time. But you see, we were and arguably still are devoutly pagan. And um, back in that time, they reckon 432, but it could have been you know a few years before or after. Of course, people, the Druids that time, <laughs> we won't split hairs. <laughs> yeah, we won't split hairs of it. But the Druids, you see, that time uh, for thousands of years here, Celtic cultures and indeed. Various other cultures across Europe. There's a theory that the Celtic culture came originally from somewhere between Baghdad and India, kind of um, Prussia, like kind of what they call the sub-Indian continent, or is it uh, Indo-European? Over there, some, yeah. somewhere out that side anyway. And as you know, the Celts came across Europe. Now, there's different theories whether they came on land or on boat. Um, the film by Bob Quinn, the Atlantean film, shows a certain maritime culture that's linked to, that links a lot of the Celtic places from Galicia up to Brittany and up to you know, West of Ireland. But anyway, suffice to say that a lot of these cultures, particularly in Ireland, the Druids collected mushrooms in September, October, and they would be fermenting throughout the winter. And they'd be very strong then coming into the summer, right? And the Druids, in their visions, would often see snakes. And this was kind of snake worshipping. Also, like, snakes were in Ireland a bit at that time, but they were becoming more rare. Like, it's funny, I even remember lizards when I was a kid, and I haven't seen one now in about fucking 20, 30 years. So even though the climate is now going up again, but years ago when it was warm, I don't know, almost when yeah. they call antediluvian after the Great Flood, um, when uh, there was various... Um, it wasn't so much that people worshipped toads or snakes or frogs, but there were certain toads in certain countries that had hallucinogenic qualities. Or it could also be that or it could also be that when people and even regular Irish frogs may have had um not so much hallucinogenic qualities, but there's a thing when you lick a frog, you'll of see course, it in a lot yeah. of the old cures they'll say, Oh, if you lick a frog you can cure warts in an eyeball or stuff like so there was in moderation. It's all in moderation, isn't it? In, yeah, everything, everything in moderation is right. I yeah. had a dog one time in Spain here a few years ago, and uh, I went out one night, and he was outside. <clears throat> he was coughing. I was like, and he was foaming and frothing at the mouth. And then I saw the fucking the the rana, the Spanish frog, the toad hopping away, and the dog had tried to bite bite him, and the toad oh. secreted whatever magic he had in him, and oh. I had to go in and get like. Three jugs of water and pour it wow. down the dog's throat because he was fucking on the verge of dropping dead. And uh, I washed it out of his mouth. He was lucky, really? lucky. But it just shows, yeah, and, and we take a lick of that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, yeah, so there definitely was a connection with reptiles, whether it was that the reptiles were used in sterminy or worship, or whether it was also that when people um, took a lot of mushrooms, you could see kind of reptilic or snake-like figures. You know, sometimes when you're tripping, mm. you see kind of, I usually see little elves or, you know, the Irish for um, magic mushroom is a pookie. And we were talking earlier about the pookies. The is the pookie. But what was called pookie mushrooms, we called them, you know. So, um, and that's, that's the term you hear yeah. all over the country. Now, there's other theories, like some books like um, yeah. Plowing the Clouds would say that, um, you know, that the, the snake referred to the way that certain mushrooms like the Animascaria, or whatever they call the, you know, the red and white one, or the one with the really, really, the really strong one, that the skin of that looks like the yeah. skin of a snake. So there's other theories that say that, oh, that that was the kind of snake worshipping. But basically, when Patrick came then, people weren't really taken to the Catholicism at all. Like, it was kind of a no-crack religion compared to what we had. It was very linear. You now Christ was born, Christ died, Christ will come again. Yeah. It didn't have the same kind of practical aspect. Of give up your old sins. Everything was give up stuff. There was no celebration, was there? Yeah, it wasn't as much crack as what we were at. So no. then, um, so what people were into were what were called mushrooms or mushrooms. And then he kind of changed out and went to the sham root, which became the sham rock. And he talked more about like, you know, tried to get in on the fertility buzz, but also on the, you know, found that they were into this. So kind of rather than being into mushrooms and snakes, he tried to kind of convert people into just the three-in-one vibe with the shamrock. And um, that's one theory. There's another theory that like there's, 
that there's a the, the word in Shamrock doesn't really exist to the same extent in the Irish language, but it actually is an Arabic word of Shamru. So, like they say, Sham as well, so it means for son, uh, you know, like, hello, my son, I Sham, you hear Sham used a lot in Arabic culture. So, it could be, you know, at a time when, yeah. you know, if you look at the, the 1981 documentary by Bob Quinn, talks a lot about the connection between the West of Ireland and the Arabic cultures, which were only developing at that point, you know. So it could it could be from the, from there that they get the, the word shamrock has come in. You know, there's various theories as to how this funny word has suddenly become synonymous with us, but we don't really have it. Do you think, is there any link between, like, shaman and shamrock? Um, God, that's an interesting one now, but I, I could be. I don't know, like, I suppose it depends on where these words come from in English, you know. Um whether shaman is an old word from um, South when someone says shaman we automatically think South America but it could be yeah exactly it could be no it could be probably an English word or it could be a, an Indo-European word yeah well I, a lot of lads will be thinking of the band the shaman you remember them in the uh, 90s oh yeah yeah they were great crack <laughs> The shaman, because the shaman were more kind of like the, I didn't think they were in the Indian culture, but in the Arabic culture as well. But it's funny how some of these words are very similar sounds, aren't they? Like, you know, the pronunciation of them and everything. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Like from the bit I've heard, like, you know, there is some connection between mushrooms, which which were like mushrooms and sham roots, which became shamrock. A book that I mentioned there earlier, Plowing the Clouds by a guy, is it Lambton or something? But he's, his book is called The Search for Irish Soma, where there was a, a cultures of in parts of India, in northern India, where there was huge mushrooms that grew that were hugely hallucinogenic and were used in a spiritual practice by the shamans. And as that culture drifted westward, you know, like 3,000 years ago or whatever, that it, it found its settlements in places that had mushrooms. That's why you find Celtic cultures in those places. You know, like you look at Spain, they say that's why they're in Galicia mm. and in Basque country rather than other parts. You know, yeah, I always think there's a link between, like, you know, obviously there's a boat and 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 fishing link between Galicia and the west coast of Ireland. But it's amazing because when you look at the old men in Connemara, for years I'd be looking at these fellas and I'd be thinking they're like these old Spanish men, these old Spanish or Portuguese fishermen. And then I was watching this show and they were talking about the the crossings of the fishermen and how some of them would get stranded or their boats would sink and they'd be rescued and they'd, you know, they'd hitch up with a woman in Portugal or hitch up with a woman vice versa in Ireland. And you have the DNA as all kind of cross-contamination. So now you, you see some of these dark, dark Connemara men and you're thinking, he doesn't look Irish. He looks fucking like he's Spanish. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, some of us get that a lot, yeah. What <laughs> <laughs> we do? Of course, yeah. You, you, your lineage, you could have that kind of Portuguese look maybe, no? Oh, well, I'm mixed race anyway. You're mixed race. What's your um, race? Um, well, my father's from North Clare and my mother's from South Mayo. That's mixed race. Yeah. That, that, that. Well, the Burn tribe were just act, they were Anglo Norman. And then the Mayo tribe were um, Odouts. And in some places there was Mahans as well. So, um, Mahans, yeah. There were more, you know, that'd be a very indigenous name in Ireland. So, um, like Omohan, and then Odout and all them. And then on, on my father's side, Stack, it's Anglo Norman name. There would have been nobility that came up from Kerry. What is there a meaning with like Stack? Well, it'd be this stack. This stack, yeah. It'd be from the Anglo-Norman. Well, you know, the word Norman comes from Norseman. Where, Norseman, yeah. Where yeah. Vikings would have settled in that part of France near Normandy. Yeah. And then um, would have come over then with Anglo-Norman settlements, you know. Mm, yeah, Norseman, that's true. This stack, it kind of has like, a, like, as you said, that Norman, the French sound to it, the stack, no? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's it. And then my first name, Andreas. Elvis. It's just a Gaelic for Andrew. There was a poet from Clare, Andrew Smokurtine, and I think I might have been named after him. So, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, we get that all the time. People are like, "Oh, you look Spanish, or you're Argentinian, or your name's not Irish." But you have more of the dark features. But look at it's mad here in Spain. You were on there about the Arabic culture, but when you look around you in Spain, especially in the south, you know the Moors conquered here years and years ago, and there's a lot of people have that more Moorish heritage, you know, and the thing is, a lot of people won't admit it, but they, because sometimes when you use that word uh, "moro" in Spanish, it's derogatory. It's like 
It's not it's not a nice word. And these people that use it don't realize that their lineage probably comes from that line as well, because, you know, the, the Moors conquered Spain and they, you know, set up shop here. And there's a lot of the heritage is still survives here. Yeah, but sure, even when you go Ole, it came from Allah. Allah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Allah, yeah. Allah, Allah. So even when the Irish are going, Ole, 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 Ole. Yeah. It come from Ola, Ola, the Allah. Ola. It's mad. It's mad now. And yeah. do you think now, like Paddy's day in the kind of modern age of technology and... Do you think that it's the same thing that it was when we were younger? Do you know, do you think that people are, the drinking culture kind of has died away? They don't want it to be associated with drinking and everything now. Do you think it's changed in that respect? Ah, you know, the world is always changing, you know. As we're sitting here, you know, the world yeah. is spinning around and it's doing its thing, you know. Everything is on its own path, yeah. you know. Like, I think sometimes it's good that we're moving on from the drink culture. I do miss the madness. But like, you can't really be drinking the way we used to drink with all the phones yeah. and all the... You just couldn't get away with it now. You know, there's often... Like, when I first quit drinking 14 years ago, you know, no, I thought no, that no. sometime now I'll go back and I'll have a good old bender for three or four days. But the way it's gone now with the, the mobile phones everywhere and... Um, social media like you couldn't you couldn't really go on a mad bender you'd be caught like and you'd be seen someone would be watching yeah but also it wouldn't be any crack because do you remember years ago like if you were on a bender and you end up in some pub and someone would take out an instrument like you'd you'd find a guitar or banjo or a fiddle and people would turn up and they'd join in whereas now you're going to any pub someone wants to turn on the telly for the soccer any hour of the day and night there's going to be TV screens there's going to be yeah there's too uh, much interruption yeah, there isn't really that time to, to kind of go into that magic space that used to exist. You know, we had a kind of a, a consciousness, you know. But look, at in another way, there's new consciousness going now online. You know, there's, I remember the first time I, I was in a chat room, maybe in San Francisco in the 90s, and my brother and sister were over as well. And, um, you know, like a chat room and the internet was so new and exciting. And like, you have to say, and you know, we all do it like we give out about social media. But you could sit down there and be scrolling for an hour. You fall into the rabbit hole. You fall into the rabbit hole. And like years ago, it was a different rabbit hole. Years ago, you went out for one point and you came home after 21. So, the lip. you know, it's just a different... The lip got you. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's easy for us to be romantic. But, you know, you have to be honest too, Simon. You can't hold back the tight pitchfork. No, and no. Like, we can't really afford to do... I, I can't. I don't know if anyone can afford to drink the way Ireland used to drink. No, so, you can't like, now anyway. Jesus, I saw, I couldn't believe it the other day. Some fellow was up in Dublin having a pint of Guinness and he said, not too bad now, good old deal, 7.70 for a pint of Guinness. I'm thinking, how the fuck, you know it, what yeah. I mean? You'd be stretching the 20 euros yeah. tonight. You wouldn't even get three pints. You know, it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, like, you get a better dinner for 7.50. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you yeah. know what I mean? It doesn't make sense anymore, does it? No, it doesn't make sense on many levels, you know, like, um, you know, like, unless now what some people do is um, they can get a few bottles of slow putching, you know, you get putching and you put like, say, slows and junipers mm. in it. We used to think it was slow putching because it came out slow, you know, and you could, <laughs> you could fucking, you know, you could go off maybe somewhere. Where there might be no one for the hangover day. lasted longer. Yeah, you go into a cave for a few days with a bottle of putchy. Like that'd be <laughs> that'd be like you could kind of go to the other, you know, the other world that way. But nowadays I think that's why a lot of people are doing stuff like mushrooms or ayahuasca or whatever the fuck. So listen, I'm gonna let you go. It's been great chatting to you and uh, I like to hear the different perspective on Paddy's day because you know the thing about it is sometimes the pagan culture is really interesting still. And when you see things about it, and like that, the puka and the pukines, and it's really interesting. And nowadays, like the modern religions have become quite boring in that respect, because as you said, it's all about sacrifice, sacrifice, and no bit of crack. Whereas the pagan thing, when you look back at it, you go, yeah, yeah, they did worship, and it could have been false gods, and it could have been everything, but they enjoyed it. You know, St. Patrick driving the... The pagan ideas, yeah. like the mushrooms and the snakes, out like to kind of take on this Catholicism. I'm sure there was probably people, you know, in the first few years, yeah. going, "Fuck, I missed the way it was there." You know, when we had the, the the druids cup full of mushrooms, and now 
you know, if you listen to this guy telling us the same old shit stories about JC and what some guy did over in Rome or Jerusalem. So, you know, the more it changes, the more it stays the exactly, same, you know. Exactly. Um, the world keeps going. That's the crack. So listen, just for anybody listening who's interested in any of your Latchko gigs and stuff, I, I was looking there on your website. You have some gigs coming up in, in the next few months. Do you want to plug any of them here and now? Oh, yeah. We're doing Kenny's Bar in the Hinch. That's in County Clare on the 27th of April. Yeah. It's the 27th or the 28th. I think it's Thursday the 28th. Then uh, might be appearing at K-Fest, which is a festival down in Killarney and County Kerry. And then we have a gig at the All-Ireland Flacchio in as well. Those three, there's one. Oh, yeah, I'm doing a solo show there in Castle Bar. Spread the word. So you're up from Chum, aren't you? So you might know some people in South Mayo. Sixth of May. I uh, see that. Stories, songs and shenanigans. Yeah, 6th of May, Casabar. Brilliant. You get a couple of lottery winners in, spend some money, give you a big tip. Yeah, it'll be a solo show. Oh, no, I actually won't. I've got a special guest joining me that night on guitar. Yeah, that'll be a good crack. The Castle Bar shows are always great old crack, you know, the Mayo team, good team. Listen, Andres, it's been lovely chatting to you. I wish you a happy Paddy's Day and, you know, Hopefully the puka won't be out looking for you. That fella's talking about me all the time. He, he probably has to pay you a visit in that time, you know? Oh, sure. You wouldn't know. Let you know what's happening. You wouldn't know. Take care of yourself. Enjoy the gigs in London and enjoy the upcoming gigs. And we'll chat to you soon. And happy Paddy's Day. All right, Simon. Happy Paddy's Day. Thanks a million. Thank you. Andres the Stack, everybody. Okay, Andres the Stack, thank you very much for coming on the show. We really enjoyed that. It was a pleasure chatting to you and all your wonderful and fascinating stories about the Pookie and all of Irish mythical and, you know, legendary folklore. And thank you for giving us your input into St. Patrick and, you know, some of the, the things that you have studied and looked at over the years and told amazing stories about. So that was quite interesting. And we wish you the best for your career in the next stage. And we hope to have you on the show again. Thank you very much. Andres the Stack. So everybody, we hope you enjoyed the show. It's been great to have you along as we celebrate the life of St. Patrick and what it means to us all. And we hope you're having a wonderful day, as I said. And, you know, take care of yourself, take care of your family, look after what's important to you and enjoy the rest of your St. Patrick's Day. My name is Simon Kay. This is the Collective Whisper podcast. We will see you further on down the line. Thank you. Bye bye. Mm-hmm.